Chapter 2 Do Nice Guys Finish Last? What You Can Learn About Trust, Cooperation, and Kindness From Gang Members, Pirates, and Serial Killers It's not uncommon for people to die while under a doctor's care. What is quite uncommon is for a doctor to deliberately kill his patients. Michael Swango is not a very successful doctor, but as James B. Stewart explains in his book Blind Eye, Swango is one of the most successful serial killers ever. By his third year in medical school, hospital patients he interacted with were dying at such a rate that his fellow students took notice. They joked that the best way to get rid of a patient was to assign them to Swango. In fact, they gave him a tongue-in-cheek nickname, Double O Swango. Like James Bond, he seemed to have a license to kill. But it was a hospital. People die there. It happens. So it was easy to brush off the deaths as accidental. However, the disproportionate number of fatalities continued when Swango began his neurosurgery internship at Ohio State. After Swango began his rotation on the ninth floor, there had been more patients requiring resuscitation than in the past year. How did he get away with this? Was he a genius mastermind like Hannibal Lecter? Hardly. While Swango was definitely very intelligent, he was a national merit finalist and graduated summa cum laude from college. It's a huge understatement to say he didn't make much effort to reduce suspicion. When a mass murder at a McDonald's in San Isidro, California was all over the news, he told a colleague, Every time I think of a good idea, somebody beats me to it. He religiously kept a scrapbook of newspaper articles about violent incidents. When asked why, he said, If I'm ever accused of murder, these will prove I'm not mentally competent. This will be my defense. Finally, an incident occurred that no one could ignore. A nurse witnessed him inject something into the IV line of a patient, Rena Cooper. And Swango was not Cooper's doctor. She nearly died, but doctors managed to save her life. Once stable, she confirmed Swango's involvement, and an investigation into the incident quickly followed. This is the part where I'm supposed to tell you that they caught him, that everyone did the right thing, that the system worked, that good triumphed over evil. But that's not what happened. Senior management at the hospital closed ranks, more concerned about the hospital's reputation than stopping a murderer. What if the public found out they had a killer working there? What about their jobs? What if Swango filed a lawsuit? What if patients or their families sued them? They obstructed the police investigation. Meanwhile, Swango was allowed to keep working. In one form or another, his reign of terror continued for 15 years. It's estimated Swango killed 60 people, putting him pretty high up on the list of successful American serial killers, though no one is sure exactly how many people he killed. In all likelihood, it was far more. Many educated, intelligent people knew what he was doing and had the chance to stop him, but they didn't. Now, this isn't a book about successful serial killers, but the Swango case does raise serious questions we all wonder about. Do people who cheat and break the rules succeed more often? Is the world fair? Can good people get ahead, or are they doomed to be suckers? Do nice guys really finish last? The answers aren't all peaches and cream, but that doesn't mean there isn't plenty of good news to give us hope. Although perhaps we should start to unravel this puzzle by starting with the bad news. In the short term, sometimes being bad can be very good. Work hard, play fair, and you'll get ahead, they say. Um, sorry, but there's actually a lot of evidence that shows this just isn't the case. People surveyed say effort is the number one predictor of success, but research shows it's actually one of the worst. 
Appearances seem to trump truth at the office. According to Stanford Graduate School of Business professor Jeffrey Pfeffer, managing what your boss thinks of you is far more important than actual hard work. A study shows that those who made a good impression got better performance reviews than those who worked harder but didn't manage impressions as well. Often this comes down to something we're all very familiar with. Good old ass-kissing. Is flattering the boss effective? Research has shown flattery is so powerful that it works even when the boss knows it's insincere. Jennifer Chapman, a professor at the University of California at Berkeley, did a study to see at what point flattery backfired. But she couldn't find one. Pfeffer says we need to stop thinking the world is fair. He puts it bluntly. The lesson from cases of people both keeping and losing their jobs is that as long as you keep your boss or bosses happy, performance really does not matter that much, and by contrast, if you upset them, performance won't save you. For those of us expecting to be rewarded for long hours and fair play, this can be tough to stomach. But hold on, it gets worse. Ass-kissers aren't the only ones who thrive. Jerks do too. Do you approach salary negotiations with a win-win, mutual benefit attitude? Unfortunately, people who push for more money out of self-interest do better. The Harvard Business Review reports that men low in the personality trait agreeableness make as much as $10,000 a year more than men high in agreeableness. Rude people also have better credit scores. As sad as it sounds, it seems we're all inclined to mistake kindness for weakness. 80% of our evaluations of other people come down to two characteristics, warmth and competence. And a study from Teresa Amabile at Harvard called Brilliant But Cruel shows we assume the two are inversely related. If someone is too nice, we figure they must be less competent. In fact, being a jerk makes others see you as more powerful. Those who break rules are seen as having more power than those who obey. It's not just an issue of perception. Sometimes jerks are actually better at their jobs than the nice guys. Research shows some negative traits can actually make you more likely to become a leader. The managers who moved up the ladder quickest and were best at their jobs weren't the people who tried to be team players or who focused on accomplishing tasks. They were the ones most focused on gaining power. To add insult to injury, it's not just that jerks do well. Being the downtrodden nice guy can kill you. Being powerless at the office, having little control or discretion over your work, is a bigger risk factor for coronary artery disease than obesity or high blood pressure. Feel underpaid? That increases risk for a heart attack, too. Meanwhile, ass-kissing results in a reduction of workplace stress, improving happiness as well as physical health. Are you a nice guy or gal who is having trouble processing all this bad news? Maybe that's because not having a high-status position at the office contributes to a reduction in executive function. Want that in English? Feeling powerless actually makes you dumber. We're taught that good conquers all, just like at the end of a Disney film. But sadly, in many scenarios researchers have studied, that's not the case. A study bluntly titled, Bad is Stronger Than Good, shows that in a shocking number of areas, bad things are more impactful and longer-lasting than good things. Bad emotions, bad parents, and bad feedback have more impact than good ones, and bad information is processed more thoroughly than good. Hardly any exceptions, indicating greater power of good, can be found. Taken together, these findings suggest that bad is stronger than good, as a general principle across a broad range of psychological phenomena. And I can't help but mention that an informal study showed that ethics books are 25% more likely to be stolen than the average library book. I'm going to stop now because my publisher won't let this book be packaged with antidepressants. Why did jerks succeed?
Sure, some of it's duplicity and evil, but there's something we can learn from them in good conscience. They're assertive about what they want, and they're not afraid to let others know about what they've achieved. Does it sound like I'm encouraging you to be a jerk? Hold your horses. We're just getting started. They do win in the short term. Now we need to hear the other side. And it all starts with the same thing your mom might say if you told her you were going to lie, cheat, bully, and ass-kiss your way to the top. What if everyone acted like that? So what happens when all of us become selfish and just stop trusting one another? The answer to that question is... Moldova. I'm sure many times you've thought you were in the most miserable place on earth. Whether it was elementary school as a child, a bad job, or just a bad day, you've probably felt at some point like you were in the unhappiest spot imaginable. But unless you were in Moldova, you weren't scientifically correct. Ruth Wienhoven the Dutch sociologist known as the godfather of happiness research, maintains the world database of happiness. And when he looked at all the countries of the world in terms of happiness, Moldova came up dead last. What garnered this little-known former Soviet republic such a dubious distinction? The Moldovans simply don't trust one another. It has reached epic proportions, so much so that it stifles cooperation in almost every area of Moldovan life. So many students bribe teachers for passing grades that Moldovans won't go to doctors who are younger than age 35, assuming they purchase their medical degrees. Writer Eric Weiner sums up the Moldovan attitude with a single sentence. Not my problem. Getting people to act collectively for the benefit of the group seems impossible. Nobody wants to do anything that benefits others. Lack of trust has turned Moldova into a black hole of selfishness. The usual response to mom saying... What if everyone did that? Is to say, quite simply, well, everyone doesn't. But that's not really true, is it? We all know a company or a department that slid downhill due to selfishness. Research agrees. Bad behavior is infectious. It spreads. Soon you won't be the only one scheming. Research by Dan Ariely of Duke University shows that seeing others cheat and get away with it increases cheating across the board. We start to see cheating as an acceptable social norm. It's a concept we can all relate to. After all, do you really drive under the speed limit all the time? Why not? Well, it's like the old joke about ethics. There are three categories, right, wrong, and everybody does it. Once we see others getting away with something, we assume it's okay. Nobody wants to be the sucker who plays by the rules when no one else does. Studies show expecting others to be untrustworthy creates a self-fulfilling prophecy. You assume they'll behave badly, so you stop trusting, which means you withhold effort and create a downward spiral. It's not surprising that work teams with just one bad apple experience performance deficits of 30 to 40 percent. So, yes, individual shenanigans can pay off, but it's only a matter of time before other people start cutting corners, too. Then everyone suffers, because you end up with a self-centered Moldova-like culture, where there is no value being created by people contributing to the common good. Root Wienhoven said, the quality of a society is more important than your place in that society. Why is that? Robert Axelrod, a professor of political science at the University of Michigan, explains, Not being nice may look promising at first, but in the long run it can destroy the very environment it needs for its own success. Simply put, when you start being selfish and Machiavellian, others will eventually notice. If they retaliate before you rise to power, you're in bad shape. Even if you succeed, you've still got a problem. You've shown others that the way to succeed is by breaking the rules, so they'll break them too, 
because bad behavior is infectious, and people do what works. You'll be creating other predators like yourself. Then the good people leave. That creates a ripple effect. You can quickly create a place where you don't want to work anymore, like Moldova. Once trust goes, everything goes. What quality do people, when surveyed across a number of arenas, work, athletic teams, family members, say they desire most in others? Trustworthiness. To truly scale effort and succeed means going beyond selfishness to create trust and achieve cooperation. Ironically, even if you want to be successful at evil, you need to do this. So, to learn why selfishness doesn't work in organizations over the long haul and see how essential trust and cooperation are, you need to look at criminals. It's your first day in prison, and you're going through all the goodies in your gift basket. Seriously, I'm not kidding. As David Scarbeck of King's College London explains, prison gangs often act as welcoming committees to new inmates who are members of their gang, and it's not unheard of for inmates from the same neighborhood to provide gifts to help new entrants get settled. What could be nicer than that? I'm not sure whether the gifts are up to Martha Stewart's standards, but I can't think of a place where a gift basket would be more welcome. We think of gang members as lawless, impulsive psychopaths, and surely there are many who fall into this category. But they know a lot more about trust and cooperation than we give them credit for. Gangs aren't coalitions dedicated to chaos led by a nefarious Bond villain. In fact, the data show that street gangs don't create crime. It's the exact opposite. Crime creates street gangs. Similarly, the majority of successful prison gangs on record were created not as a way to further evil, but as a way to provide protection to their members while incarcerated. A study of members of the Aryan Brotherhood prison gang shows that far from being the worst of the worst, gang members' criminal records or number of violent encounters in prison are nearly indistinguishable from those of non-gang members. In many ways, criminals are more aware of the value of trust and cooperation than you and I, because within the world they live, trust cannot be taken for granted. You don't go to the office every day and wonder if someone is going to stab you in the neck. So the stakes of trustworthiness are much higher for criminals. They can't call the cops when someone steals their heroin. Some people may shake their head at this, thinking that while there is definitely a shortage of trust in the criminal community, it is more than made up for by the increased options criminals have. If someone screws them over, they can kill him, and that will keep people in line. But research into organized crime shows resorting to violence is actually highly overrated. What happens when you go total Tony Soprano and start whacking everyone who causes problems? Everyone will respect you and no one will want to work with you. Being a mob boss who is too violent has an inherent irony to it. Would you want to work for someone whose response to late expense reports is two bullets to the head? I didn't think so. Therefore, smart criminals must find alternatives to violent enforcement. They need more order, not less, to reduce the increased options on their plate. As an inmate at Corcoran State Prison was quoted as saying, Without order, we have anarchy. And when we have anarchy, people die here. How valuable are stability and rules? So valuable that in prison where much of daily interaction is divided along racial lines, whites actually encourage blacks to join black gangs. With more anonymity and separation, violence increases behind bars. When everyone is a part of the system, even if that means joining a rival gang, life is more stable. Want to cheat a little? Fine. But if you want to do it every day for years, you need a system. Always worrying about being cheated or killed makes transactions too costly, preventing efficient dealings, whether you're selling Pepsi or illegal drugs. You need rules and cooperation, and that means trust. 
Economists call it the discipline of continuous dealings. When you know and trust someone, it makes a transaction smoother and faster. That means more transactions happen, producing a better market and more value for everyone involved. It's no different for prison gangs, really. Think of it like a good eBay review for your heroin dealer. Great seller, A++++++ would buy again. Eventually, this scaling of order, trust, and rules makes a prison gang a lot more like a corporation. Gang leaders, shot callers, often send recently incarcerated members of their gang new arrival questionnaires. It's good to know what fresh employees have to offer. As crazy as it may sound, all this works. Corrupt countries with mafia-style groups are more economically successful than countries with decentralized crime, showing higher rates of growth. They put the organized in organized crime. And while nefarious groups certainly have negative effects on society, the order they enforce has positive externalities as well. The presence of Yakuza in Japanese cities is negatively correlated with civil lawsuits. Research shows prisons in the United States run smoother with gangs than without them. Don't get me wrong. These are criminals. They're doing bad things. But for any criminal organization to be successful, it needs a level of trust and cooperation inside, even if its members are doing naughtiness outside. Successful criminals know that selfishness, internally, doesn't scale. Eventually, this can lead to criminals treating people, at least those inside the gang, quite well. When was the last time your boss sent you a gift basket? This isn't some new thing. Even hundreds of years ago, criminal groups thrived by looking out for one another. And what might be the best historical example of criminal cooperation? The parrot-shouldered rebels of the high seas. Pirates were so successful because they treated their people well. They were democratic. They trusted one another. And they set up an economically sound system to make sure this would be the case. These savvy businessmen of the oceans were not all crazed psychopaths with eye patches. In fact, according to Blackbeard expert Angus Constam, that famed pirate, over the course of his career, killed exactly zero people. And there are no cases on record of anyone walking the plank. Nope. Not one. So why do we have this impression of them as bloodthirsty savages? It's called marketing. It's much easier, cheaper, and safer to have people surrender quickly because they're terrified of you than it is to fight every battle. So pirates were sharp enough to cultivate a brand image of barbarity. Of course, pirates weren't all kind sweethearts and Blackbeard was no Robin Hood. They cooperated so well, not out of altruism, but because it made good business sense. They knew they needed rules and trust to succeed. And they ended up forming a system more fair and appealing than life on tyrannical Royal Navy ships or mercantile boats, where workers were exploited to maximize profit. As Peter Leeson writes in his book, The Invisible Hook, The Hidden Economics of Pirates, contrary to conventional wisdom, pirate life was orderly and honest. You may be a pirate at heart yourself, Ever get tired of a bully of a boss and think about striking out on your own? Think everyone should have a say in how the company is run? Think a corporation is obligated to take care of its people? And that racism has no place in business? Congrats! You're a pirate! Much like prison gangs, pirates weren't originally unified to do evil. In fact, one could easily argue they were a response to evil. Mercantile shipowners of the period were despotic. Captains routinely abused their authority. They could take any crewman's share of confiscated loot or have him executed. As a response to this predation, and a desire to sail the seas and not worry about being abused by the management, the life of the pirate was born. Pirate ships were very democratic places. All rules needed to be agreed to unanimously. 
captains could be deposed for any reason, and this turned them from tyrants into something closer to servants. The only time a captain had total authority was in the midst of battle, when quick decision-making was a matter of life and death. Pirates ended up forming a company you might be very happy to work for. Since the boss could be fired at any time, he was quite focused on taking good care of his employees. Captain's wages weren't significantly larger than anyone else's. As Leeson explains, The difference between the highest and lowest paid person in this pirate crew was thus only a single share. And he didn't get ridiculous perks. Pirate captains didn't get a bigger bunk on the ship or more food. Pirates, Inc. also had great benefits. Fighting bravely or being the first to notice targets was handsomely rewarded with bonuses. Got injured? Just file a claim. Pirates effectively had a disability plan covering battle-related injuries. And these fantastic HR initiatives worked. The historical record shows pirates had no trouble getting people to join their ranks, while the Royal Navy resorted to compelling men to sign up. Pirates, Inc. even had a diversity program hundreds of years before it was popular or mandated by law. Why? They weren't morally enlightened. Racism simply wasn't good business, whereas treating people right was. It gave them an advantage in recruiting and retaining talent. It's estimated that the average pirate ship was approximately 25% black. Each crew member, regardless of race, had the right to vote on ship issues and was paid an equal share. This was in the early 1700s. The United States did not even abolish slavery until more than 150 years later. Did it work? Economists praise pirates for their business savvy. In Leeson's paper, Anarchy, The Law and Economics of Pirate Organization, he says, Pirate governance created sufficient order and cooperation to make pirates one of the most sophisticated and successful criminal organizations in history. So treating those around you well can lead to far greater success than selfishness even if your goal is to make mischief. Some may say I'm stretching the point. Talking about prison gangs or long-dead pirates may be clever, but how relevant is it to modern life? We've looked at the selfish bad guys, and we've looked at the bad guys who are smart enough to not be selfish. What about the truly good? What about those of us who really want to do the right thing? Do we succeed? Can nice guys finish first? When you do the right thing, if you put your life on the line to save someone else, will it be rewarded? The young man next to you stumbles off the subway platform and falls onto the tracks below. He is incapacitated, helpless. You can feel the rumble of the approaching train. Do you climb down to help him? Some would say it's less an act of altruism than an act of suicide. Your two young daughters are standing next to you. How will they fare if you die and they lose a parent? Letting a young man die is tragic, but aren't two deaths and two orphans more tragic? That's a tough question to answer. Luckily, on January 2, 2007, Wesley Autry didn't ask it. As the lights on the front of the number one train flashed in the tunnel, he jumped down to the tracks where Cameron Hullapeter lay helpless. But Autry had misjudged the speed of the train. It was coming much faster than he anticipated. There simply was not time to move Hullapeter to safety. Yet he wasn't about to let the man die, either. The shriek of the train's brakes tore the air, but the driver couldn't stop its momentum in time. As the sound of the oncoming train rose to a deafening roar, Autry shoved Hollopeter into a narrow drainage ditch and leapt on top of him, sheltering him as the train passed over them. Both were unharmed, though the train had come so close to killing them that it left grease on Autry's hat. He later said, I don't feel like I did something spectacular. I just saw someone who needed help. I did what I felt was right. 
Wesley Autry acted altruistically that day. He had everything to lose and nothing to gain. He was the type of hero we think exists only in movies. So, did this nice guy finish last? No. Autry received the Bronze Medallion, the highest award that New York City gives to civilians. Previous winners include General Douglas MacArthur, Muhammad Ali, and Martin Luther King, Jr. His daughters received scholarships and computers. He got backstage passes to Beyonce and a new Jeep. He was on The Ellen DeGeneres Show and received season tickets to the New Jersey Nets. On January 23, Autry and his daughters were at the State of the Union Address as guests of President George W. Bush, who praised Autry's selfless actions on national television. It's an amazing story, and that's exactly what cynics might say. We remember stories like this because they are so rare. When we step aside from both the spectacular stories and the cynical eye-rolling, what do the statistics actually tell us? Do nice guys finish last? Yes, but they also finish first. Confused? It actually makes perfect sense. Stay with me. When Wharton School professor Adam Grant looked at who ended up at the bottom of success metrics, he found an awful lot of nice guys, givers. In studies of engineers, medical students, and salespeople, those who were the most giving to others consistently came up short. They missed more deadlines, got lower grades, and closed fewer sales. For a guy like Adam, who has devoted much of his research to exploring ethical business and how altruistic behavior can lead to success, this was far more distressing than it might be to you or me. If he had stopped there, it would have been a sad day indeed. But he didn't. When I spoke with Adam, he said, Then I looked at the other end of the spectrum and said, If givers are at the bottom, who's at the top? Actually, I was really surprised to discover it's the givers again. The people who consistently are looking for ways to help others are overrepresented not only at the bottom, but also at the top of most success metrics. Matchers, people who try to keep an even balance of give and take, and takers, people who selfishly always try to get more and give less, end up in the middle. Givers are found at the very top and very bottom. Those same studies show that the majority of productive engineers, students with the highest grades, and salespeople who brought in the most revenue were all givers. When you think about it, it makes intuitive sense. We all know a martyr who goes out of their way to help others and yet fails to meet their own needs or ends up exploited by takers. We also all know someone everyone loves because they are so helpful, and they succeed because everyone appreciates and feels indebted to them. Being the most productive or getting top grades isn't the only thing givers seem to excel at. It also appears to make them rich. When Arthur Brooks looked at the connection between charitable giving and income, he found that for every dollar donated, income for that person went up by $3.75. There was a clear relationship between how much was given and how much was earned that year. Some of you may be scratching your heads. This seems to contradict much of what we saw in the beginning of the chapter, where jerks did better. Yes, on average, jerks do better, but at the very top we see the givers. Income peaks among those who trust people more, not less. In a study titled The Right Amount of Trust, people were asked how much they trusted others on a scale of 1 to 10. Income was highest among those who responded with the number 8. This aligns with what Adam Grant found, with givers at the top of success metrics. What also matched was that those who responded with a number above an 8 had incomes 7% lower than the 8s. Much like the givers at the bottom of success studies, these people were more likely to be taken advantage of. Who suffered the most? Those with the lowest levels of trust had an income 14.5% lower than 8s. 
That loss is the equivalent of not attending college. Surely these givers can't hack it when they get to be leaders, right? Leaders are supposed to be tough. We saw earlier that some negative traits actually help people who are in charge. However, when we look at the top-ranked leaders in the military, where we would expect toughness to be prized, the exact opposite is true. Those scoring the best are supportive, not stern. While some of those studies say the social stress of being a powerless nice guy can give you a heart attack, the big-picture research shows that the old maxim, the good die young, isn't true. The Terman study, which followed many subjects across their entire lives, found that people who were kind actually lived longer, not shorter. You might be inclined to think that getting help from others would prolong your life, but the study showed the reverse. Those who gave more to others lived longer. Finally, there was the issue of happiness. While a number of data points show how jerks get promoted or are financially rewarded, they aren't necessarily any more thrilled with their lives. But research has found that ethical people are happier. People less tolerant of unethical behavior had a higher well-being than those who were okay with a big dose of cheating. The boost was equivalent to the happiness increase one would get from a small increase in income, getting hitched, and going to church regularly. This is where the Moldovans have it all wrong. By not trusting, by not helping others, they miss out on a lot of what makes us happy. Studies show spending money on others makes us happier than spending it on ourselves. Volunteering even just two hours a week predicts increases in life satisfaction. Even more surprising, those who donate their time to help others feel less busy and like they have more free time. In a lot of short-term scenarios, a little cheating and bullying can pay off. But over time, it pollutes the social environment and soon everyone is second-guessing everybody and no one wants to work toward the common good. Being a taker has short-term benefits, but it's inherently limited. In the end, Nobody wants to help you because they know what you're really like. Who are a taker's worst enemies? Other takers, says Adam Grant's research. While givers get tons of help from other givers and receive protection from matchers, who believe that to maintain fairness, kind acts should be rewarded. They have only takers to worry about. Meanwhile, takers end up being disliked by everyone, including other takers. Unless takers learn to trust and cooperate, they can never really scale their efforts the way a group of givers can. Even matchers, who do benefit from trust and reciprocity, are inherently limited because they often wait for someone else to initiate a good act, which prevents exchanges that could be beneficial for both parties. You might think I'm glossing over the fact that a lot of the givers end up dead last. The difference between the givers who succeed and the givers who don't isn't random. Adam Grant notes that totally selfless givers exhaust themselves helping others and get exploited by takers, leading them to perform poorly on success metrics. There are a number of things givers can do to build limits for themselves and make sure they don't go overboard. At two hours a week volunteering, don't do more. Research by Sonia Leibomirsky shows that people are happier and less stressed when they chunk their efforts to help others versus a relentless sprinkling. So by doing all their good deeds one day a week, givers make sure assisting others doesn't hamper their own achievements. 100 hours a year seems to be the magic number. Grant also points out the other ace in the hole givers have. Matchers. They want to see good rewarded and evil punished, so matchers go out of their way to punish takers and protect givers from harm. When givers are surrounded by a coterie of matchers, they don't have to fear exploitation as much. This may seem a bit confusing. In the short term, being a jerk has benefits but eventually poisons the well since others become jerks around you. In the long term, being a giver pays off big.
though you risk exhausting yourself helping others. In the war between good and evil, is there a clear winner? Is there a clear way to behave that will let you get ahead and let you sleep at night feeling like a decent person? Actually, there is. Don Johnson made six million dollars in one night. No, I'm not talking about the Miami Vice actor. This Don is a gambler. And he took it all from the Tropicana. But that isn't where his winning streak stopped. He ended up taking the casinos of Atlantic City for a lot more. It's an old saying in the gambling industry, the house always wins. And for a few months in 2011, Don Johnson became the house. It's one of the most sensational success stories in gambling. Johnson didn't cheat or count cards, and nobody makes that much money due to pure luck. Johnson knew cards. More important, he knew math. His day job was running a company that calculated the odds for horse racing. You see, top blackjack gamblers don't gamble. They know the odds and won't play straight up. They actually negotiate rules with the house. If I lose X amount, you rebate me a percentage of it. Or, the dealer has to hit on X instead of Y. After the recession of 2008, casinos were in bad shape. And since a disproportionate amount of casino revenues come from high rollers, they were offering these players rebates of up to 20%. By the time Johnson was done negotiating, not only did the casino no longer have an odds advantage at the table, but Johnson had reduced his losses to only 80 cents on the dollar. As long as he didn't make any strategic mistakes during play, he was ahead. He became the house. In cards, you can never be sure you'll win a particular hand, but once the odds favor you, the gods of math decree that the longer you stay, the better you do. With that, Don went to work. Playing almost a hand of blackjack per minute and betting $100,000 a hand, he began devastating the Tropicana. At one point, he won $800,000 on a single hand. Cutting similar deals with other casinos, he won $5 million from the Borgata and $4 million from Caesars. In six months, he took Atlantic City casinos for a cool $15 million. It wasn't magic or luck or cheating, and he didn't win every hand he played, but by shifting the odds in his favor and playing right, he came out way ahead in the long run. Let's handle the issue of ethics the way Don Johnson so marvelously approached the game of blackjack. Let's get the house edge in our favor. Don't worry, you won't have to do any heavy math. The system itself is something you've been familiar with since you were a child. And it works. At this point, you know cooperation is vital, but will you get cheated? Should you trust? If you don't, you risk becoming a Moldovan. If you do, you could end up a chump. How do you handle the dilemma of whether to trust? When scientists look at the issue of trust, they turn to a game called the prisoner's dilemma. Here's how it works. Let's say you and your friend rob a bank, and you're not very good at robbing banks, so you get caught. The police arrest you both and put you in separate rooms to interrogate you. You have no way to communicate with your friend. The cops offer you a deal. If you testify that your friend was the mastermind and he doesn't testify against you, you go free, and he gets five years in prison. If you don't testify against your friend, but he testifies against you, you get five years and he goes free. If you both testify against each other, you both get three years. If you both refuse to testify, you both get one year. If you two knew you could trust each other, the answer would be simple. You both keep your mouth shut and get one year. But can you trust your friend? Are the police scaring the heck out of him? Will he testify while you stay silent? That means he walks free and you get five years in prison. 
In a one-off game, testifying seems like the smart move. But what about when you play the game 20 times? That's more like life, right? Our fate rarely hangs on any one decision. This is where Robert Axelrod got started. With the Cold War raging between the United States and the USSR, he wanted to explore what it takes to get people to trust and cooperate. What strategy is most effective? So he decided to have a tournament where different computer programs with different strategies play Prisoner's Dilemma together to see which one racked up the most points. Researchers from psychology, economics, math, sociology, and other disciplines sent in a total of 14 algorithms plus one program that would behave randomly. One of the programs was insanely nice. It always trusted its opponent even after being screwed over. Another of the programs, named All-D, was the opposite. It always betrayed its opponent without fail. Other programs rested somewhere in between. Some of the more complex programs played nice for the most part while occasionally trying to sneak in a betrayal to get a leg up. One program called Tester monitored the other player's moves to see how much it could get away with and then would backpedal if caught betraying its opponent. Which ethical system reigned supreme in the end? Shockingly, the simplest program submitted won the tournament. It was only two lines of code, and it's something we're all familiar with. Tit for tat. All TFT did was cooperate on the first prisoner's dilemma round, then in every subsequent round, it did whatever the opponent did previously. That is, if on the previous round the opponent cooperated, it cooperated on the next round. If the opponent betrayed, it betrayed on the next round. This simple program decimated the competition. So Axelrod ran the tournament again. He reached out to even more experts, and this time had 62 entries. Some algorithms were more complex, and some were variants on TFT. Who won? Simple old tit-for-tat. Again. What magic power did this humble little strategy have? Axelrod determined it came down to a few key things that made those two lines of code so special. He saw the same thing we noticed when looking at altruistic methods like being a giver. Early on, the good guys got trounced. Much like in the study, bad is stronger than good, the bad guys quickly seized the high ground in the initial interaction. Even TFT, the eventual winner, always got the short end of the stick early on because it cooperated initially. But as time passed, the bad guys couldn't match the big gains of the cooperators. When TFT met a program that cooperated on every move, the gains were enormous. Even programs like Tester, the backpedaler, learned that playing along was more beneficial than the marginal gains earned from defecting. TFT had a number of things going for it. By initially cooperating, it showed goodwill. With other nice programs, it quickly started cooperating and increasing value. With punishing programs, they effectively became nice programs. With programs like Tester, TFT showed a willingness to punch them in the nose if they betrayed. It was no wimp, so those programs got in line. TFT also displayed something vital. Forgiveness. By not being complex, by only remembering what the other player did most recently, TFT was able to bring out the best in almost any program that was not totally evil or utterly random. TFT was not just a cooperator and a punisher, but also a teacher. It showed the other players how to play better. Axelrod says that one of the reasons the not-nice programs performed so poorly is because they could not forgive and got caught in death spirals. But Axelrod didn't stop there. He and other researchers explored how to build an even better program. TFT had won two big tournaments, but in order to defeat an apex predator, 
Did they need to add more evil to create a super-program? Hardly. What they needed was more good. Specifically, more forgiveness. Axelrod and others saw that going from straight tit-for-tat to generous tit-for-tat made the program even more successful. Rather than always repeating the opponent's last move, it would occasionally forgive and cooperate after being betrayed. While this led to it losing a couple more points to evil programs like All D, those points were more than made up for by the generous TFT's tremendous gains pulling potentially nice programs out of death spirals. The main reasons for the success of TFT were that it was nice, it was forgiving, it was easy for the other players to deal with, and it would retaliate when necessary. I'm sure a number of parallels to things we've talked about are becoming obvious, but let's see how the principles from a simple game can lead to big payoffs in life. Moldova is like all D. If the nice guys of Moldova could meet each other and work together, before too long they would get a foothold, but that never happens. If they signaled niceness to try to find other nice guys, that would be like baby chicks cheeping in a nest. It encourages Mama Bird to come feed them, but it also gives away their location to hungry cats. And the cats vastly outnumber the Mama Birds in poor, sad Moldova. Pirates, on the other hand, wouldn't tolerate all D. A democratic system with rules in place to assure winnings are shared nearly equally would kick that jerk off the boat. Even if all D was the boss, he wouldn't last long because captains would be subject to the same rules as everyone else, and rules would be agreed upon unanimously. It would be really hard for a total jerk to remain on board. What if we injected more Adam Grant-style giver tendencies in there? Instead of robbing everyone who wasn't a pirate, what if they started cooperating, minimally at first, convincing non-pirates to work with them? What if, instead of a single pirate ship or a small group of ships, they created a far larger network? The Royal Navy might not have stood a chance. Inherent in the strategies of the bad guys in the tournament were two mistaken assumptions. The first was that later rounds would be like earlier rounds. Yet many programs, including TFT, paid attention to prior moves and responded accordingly, eventually punishing bad behavior. This happens in real life. We get a reputation. The majority of our dealings are not anonymous. Most of us deal with the same people over and over again. Betray them, and they remember it. An early edge achieved with betrayal isn't worth much since it poisons what could have been a fruitful long-term relationship. The second mistaken assumption was that the games are zero-sum. In real life, cooperation can be far more beneficial and far less costly. How? Well, the answer involves orange peels. Business schools frequently do a negotiation experiment in which two groups are told to decide how a pile of oranges, which both groups need, should be split. Both groups are given specific details the other group can't see. Much like in the prisoner's dilemma. The bad guys do terribly. They assume the game is zero-sum. Every orange they get is one the other group doesn't get. But the cooperators, the people who share and communicate quickly, discover that the special instructions each person was given include a detail. One group only needs the fruit of the orange. The other group only needs the peels. If the groups talk to each other, they can easily get everything they both need. But if they immediately resort to fighting, both groups do worse. The long-term versus short-term issue is critical. Used car salespeople think they'll see a customer only one time, and that's why they have the reputation they do. Meanwhile, your mom is, hopefully, going to be with you till the end. That's why moms have the reputation they do. The longer the time we anticipate we'll be dealing with someone, the better the behavior we can expect. Adam Grant's research proves this distinction as well. Givers often take it on the chin in the short term, but over the long term, 
when they can meet other givers and gain the protection of matchers, their reputation becomes known and boom, they go from the bottom of success metrics to the top. But isn't TFT a lot like Adam Grant's matchers? There are two critical distinctions. TFT starts off with cooperation. Matchers don't necessarily cooperate. Matchers tend to wait until others do something nice before they respond in kind. This passive attitude drastically reduces the number of interactions they have. Meanwhile, givers run around handing out favors, losing a little to takers, getting a fair share back from matchers, and winning the lottery whenever they meet another giver. Givers can be great networkers by merely being themselves, while the hesitant matchers wait for an engraved invitation to the party. Axelrod offers four lessons we can learn from TFT's success. Don't be envious. Again, most of life isn't zero-sum. Just because someone else wins, that doesn't mean you lose. Sometimes that person needs the fruit, and you need the peel. And sometimes the strategy that makes you lose small on this round makes you win big on the next. Here's the crazy thing. TFT never got a higher score than its counterpart did in any single game. It never won. But the gains it made in the aggregate were better than those achieved by winners who edged out meager profits across many sessions. Axelrod explains this by saying, Tit for Tat won the tournament not by beating the other player, but by eliciting behavior from the other player that allowed both to do well. Don't worry how well the other side is doing. Worry about how well you're doing. Don't be the first to defect. Influence guru Professor Robert Cialdini says that not only is reciprocity one of the key elements of being influential and winning favor with others, but it's also essential that you go first. Matchers wait and miss too many opportunities, and takers trade short-term gains for long-term losses. Remember, all the big winners were nice, and all the big losers started off betraying. Reciprocate both cooperation and defection. Never betray anyone initially. Why make someone question your motives? But if a person cheats you, don't be a martyr. In the tournament, picking fights resulted in low scores, but retaliating increased scores. Don't be too clever. Tester sounds like a rational strategy. See what you can get away with and go no further. But this strategy lacks the clarity of TFTs, and while Tester edged out a gain here and there, it came at the cost of a good reputation. None of the other complex systems fared very well. TFT was the simplest of them all, and adding some occasional forgiveness was the only way to improve it. You need to be able to teach the people you're dealing with because you want the relationship to continue. You cooperate with me, I cooperate with you. You betray me, I betray you. It's that simple. Getting too clever muddies the waters, and the other person can quickly become very skeptical of you. Once that person sees clear cause and effect, he or she is more likely to jump on board and realize that everyone will benefit. Now, in zero-sum games like chess, you want your intentions to be unclear. But in the iterated prisoner's dilemma, it's the exact opposite. You want the other player to see what you're doing so they can join you. Life is more often like the latter. We've looked at jerks, nice guys, prison gangs, pirates, and computer simulations. You've learned a lot, and that's all fine and dandy, but what rules can you take away from this and use? Let's round up what we've got so we know how to be ethical and successful, but not a chump. Rule 1. Pick the right pond. Don't move to Moldova, literally or figuratively. When I asked Bob Sutton, 
a professor at Stanford's Graduate School of Business, for the best piece of advice he gives to his students? He said this, When you take a job, take a long look at the people you're going to be working with, because the odds are you're going to become like them. They are not going to become like you. You can't change them. If it doesn't fit who you are, it's not going to work. As we've established, bad work environments can make you a bad person and can make you unhappy. Cheating is infectious, as shown by Dan Ariely's study, Contagion and Differentiation in Unethical Behavior, the effect of one bad apple on the barrel. When you see your peers cheat, you're more likely to cheat. And when your peers see each other cheat, everyone is more likely to bend the rules. That's one step closer to Moldova. Luckily, the influence of context works both ways. The Terman study, which followed over a thousand people from youth to death, came to the conclusion that the people who surround us often determine who we become. When we see others around us perform altruistic acts, we're more likely to act altruistically ourselves. This also allows us to more safely be givers and get the success benefits that top-ranked givers get without the fear of ending up a martyr. Connecting with other givers was what allowed for the incredible success of the NICE programs in Axelrod's tournament. If you're already in a bad environment, circle the wagons with other good people. It only took 5% of interactions between NICE programs for good to get the edge over bad. That may not translate perfectly to the everyday world, but there's certainly a tipping point. Picking the right pond can even help you get the benefits jerks get. Kissing your boss's ass isn't immoral or unsavory if the boss is someone you actually respect. At that next job interview, find out who you will be reporting to. Ask to speak to that person and do some research on them. Studies show that your boss has a much larger effect on your happiness and success than the company at large. Rule 2. Cooperate first. All the successful programs in Axelrod's competition cooperated first. Givers outdo matchers because they volunteer help without waiting to see what the other person will do. Plenty of other research backs this up. Robert Cialdini says that being the first to offer help is key to engendering a feeling of reciprocity, which is one of the cornerstones of persuasion and ingratiation. When Harvard Business School's Deepak Malhotra teaches negotiation, the first thing he says isn't be tough or show the other side you mean business. His number one recommendation to students is, they need to like you. This doesn't mean you need to give $20 bills to everyone you meet. Favors can be quite small. We also often forget that something quite easy for us, a 30-second email introduction, can have enormous payoffs for others, a new job. Doing quick favors for new acquaintances tells other givers you're a giver and can earn you the protection of matchers. Go ahead and send that new inmate a gift basket. When the knives come out in the prison yard, you'll have a lot more people watching your back. Rule 3. Being selfless isn't saintly. It's silly. Trusting others works better in general, but like Don Johnson at the blackjack table, having the edge doesn't mean you'll win every hand. You can't predict how successful cooperating will be for any specific interaction, but you'll win more than you lose. Remember, the most successful people in that study on the power of trust ranked themselves an 8, not a 10, as to how much they trusted others. In fact, there's a newer variant of tit-for-tat that one researcher says outperforms both regular TFT and GTFT. What tweak does it include? If its opponent always cooperates no matter what, it exploits that opponent. Kind of sad that it works, but we get it. 
It's just human nature that when people do too much and don't ever push back, they get taken for granted. So if you're not a total saint, it's okay. Being a saint is actually a very poor strategy for getting ahead. Don't you feel better now? Axelrod saw that retaliation was necessary for programs to be successful in the tournament. But what does that mean in the real world? It turns out that the best way to punish takers in the workplace is good old-fashioned gossip. Warning others about takers will make you feel better and can help police bad behavior. Also, as Adam Grant acknowledged, giving too much can lead to burnout. A mere two hours a week of helping others is enough to get maximum benefits. So there's no need for guilt or for martyring yourself and no excuse for saying you don't have time to help others. Rule 4. Work hard, but make sure it gets noticed. What lessons can you take from the jerks without becoming a jerk? A common trend through the research was that jerks aren't afraid to push a little. They self-promote. They negotiate. They make themselves visible. This can be done without being a jerk. Maybe you won't gain everything the jerks get, but you can benefit from putting yourself out there and without losing your soul. You do need to be visible. Your boss does need to like you. This is not a proof of a heartless world. It's just human nature. Hard work doesn't pay off if your boss doesn't know whom to reward for it. Would you expect a great product to sell with zero marketing? Probably not. So, what's a good balance? Every Friday, send your boss an email summarizing your accomplishments for the week. Nothing fancy, but quickly relating the good work you're doing. You might think they know what you're up to, but they're busy. They have their own problems. They'll appreciate it and begin to associate you with the good things they're hearing. From you, of course. And when it's time to negotiate for that raise or to refresh your resume, you can just review the emails for a reminder of why exactly you're such a good employee. Rule 5. Think long-term and make others think long-term. Remember, Bad behavior is strong in the short term, but good behavior wins over in the long term. So to the best of your ability, make things longer term. Build more steps into the contract. Entice others with ways you can help them down the line. The more things seem like a one-off, the more incentive people have to pull one over on you. The more interactions or friends you have in common with other people, and the more likely you are to encounter them again, the more it makes sense for these people to treat you well. It's why medieval kings married their sons and daughters off to the children of other royals. Now we're family. We're going to have grandchildren in common. We're going to have to play nice. Axelrod calls it enlarging the shadow of the future. David Destino, head of the Social Emotions Group at Northeastern University, says, People are always trying to discern two things, whether a potential partner can be trusted and whether he or she is likely to be encountered again. Answers to those two questions far beyond anything else, will determine what any of us will be motivated to do in the moment. Rule 6. Forgive. Remember the thing that made tit-for-tat even better? Occasionally forgiving. It prevented death spirals. While Axelrod's tournaments are an abstraction and may seem oversimplified compared to real life, the forgiveness lesson is more important in day-to-day -day behavior than in the game. Life is noisy and complex and we don't have perfect information about others and their motives. Writing people off can be due just to a lack of clarity. Face it, you can't even always trust yourself. You say you're on a diet, then someone brings donuts to work and you blow it. Does that mean you're a bad person and you should never trust yourself again? Of course not. TFT never came out ahead in a single game, but it won out in the grand scheme of things. 
One reason was because it could teach its opponent to behave. That means giving second chances. You're not perfect. Others aren't perfect. And sometimes people get confused. One last thing before we move on. Remember Michael Swango, the killer MD? Well, they did catch him. Eventually, someone did the right thing. Jordan Cohen sent a fax about him to every medical school in the United States, and this got the attention of the FBI. Swango fled the country, but when he eventually returned in 1997, he was detained at Chicago's O'Hare Airport. On September 6, 2000, he pled guilty to murder and fraud to avoid the death penalty. Sentenced to three consecutive life terms, he now resides in a maximum security facility in Florence, Colorado. Swango was careless, and the people around him were selfish. In the short term, that worked out for them. But in the longer term, he was caught, and many reputations were sullied. Even when others are selfish, being a serial killer isn't really a good long-term strategy for success. So being a nice person can be an effective strategy. But that raises other questions. How do you know how long to hang in there? The old saying is, quitters never win and winners never quit. But is it true? We all know someone who wasted years on something that was never going to happen. Did she really think that quitting her job and becoming a yoga instructor was going to work out? And we've all quit something too early and regretted not sticking it out through the tough spots. Why did I drop out of college? I'd be so much better off now. So, what makes more sense? Grit or quit? How do you know when to give up and when to hang in there? Let's look at that next.